us down to the last comic shop in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, it is now time for more of the last comic shop. It's so nice to have you back at the shop, Mikey. Really, it really is. I never left. I I know. I found the sleeping bag underneath the counter. You don't have to tell us. <laughs> I live behind boxes of Archie comics. <laughs> yes, that's right. We are opening up the shop to Archie comic fans. So if you love your Jughead, come on inside. And who doesn't love your Jughead? We're keeping the shop open for the oldies that love those Jugheads. Yeah. Oh, Did you guys ever read the Jughead, the hunger from the horror line? No, I never did. What's that one about? Uh, my co-host. Chad Smith. I, I don't know. I didn't read it either, but it had those Francesco <laughs> Francophia covers, and it was glorious. I don't read Jughead. You know who read Jughead? Ethan. We should have had yeah. Ethan on. Ethan loved the Jughead. In any case, I am Ethan's brother, Andy Larson, the host with the most. I'm joined by Ethan's cousin, Jay Scott, as well as somebody that's not related to Ethan at all, and that's Chad Smith, as well as Mikey Wood, who's, I don't know, I think Ethan's illegitimate child from the future. I, I don't It's a whole cable strife Nathan Summers kind of punk. <laughs> He's got a cyborg garb. You can't see yeah. it. I just For like when Mikey much. when Mikey heads out with his chromed out armor That's with right. all the spikes. I like it when Mikey gets like six different variant action figures of the same. <laughs> That's right. Because they needed all of them. It's like here's Mikey in uh, a sombrero. <laughs> yes, from yes. Chichis. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like Mexicable a whole lot. Mexicable was my favorite. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to get to actually the show. Unfortunately, we don't have a book to read this week. You caught us in the middle of spring cleaning. Like, I I told you that I found the sleeping bag underneath the desk. That's because I'm trying to clean out the place. It's the springtime, right? It's finally nice. And and we decided to clean out the shop. So, like, I was throwing out old accordions and some issues of uh, a US-1 that I didn't want anymore. Mm. What are you guys throwing out? Not these copies of Super Pro. That's coming back, baby. I can feel it. <laughs> true. One one of these days, I have every issue of uh, Young Heroes in Love. I like Ooh. those. That's oh, a good book, go. man. Yeah, I can't get rid of that. I was going to ask J.A. whether he wanted all of these old McDonald's cups from the Batman Returns with the Frisbee disc lids. I just want the disc lids. I don't care about the cups anymore, but give me those disc lids. <laughs> okay. We'll put those aside here. I, I, but in any case, uh, I was thinking that while we're cleaning out some stuff, another thing that we have to clean out are, are the last of the interviews from Baltimore Comic Con. You know, that thing that happened like six months ago. And we've been like slowly drizzling it out to all of our fans. We really. talked to a lot of people. It was lots of fun. 19, in fact. 19 people. Jay told us never to talk to anybody ever again. Yeah, you got to talk to me. Talk to me. <laughs> I'm somebody. Okay, well, we'll talk to you the next week's show. But in any case, on this week's show, we've got some great interviews. And we're going to start off with Jerry Ordway. This was a, a really great interview. We went up and wanted to talk to him about Death of Superman, and we never got to it. As you'll see, Chad was really interested in hearing about the Batman 89 movie adaptation. And we got that some Batman's great stories. Great. It is. 
And that and that adaptation was fabulous. Yeah, they did the ending before they knew what the ending of the movie was. Ah, no, no, no. Let Jerry, let Jerry Ordway tell the story. <laughs> all right, all right. Here's, here's Jerry Ordway's uh, interview from Baltimore Comic Con. Hey, this is Andy Larson from The Last Comic Shop, and we're here with Jerry Ordway. And, Jerry, you've, it seems like you've had a really great Baltimore Comic Con so far. Every time I've come over, it looks like you've been busy. You know, you do those commissions at the shows. The first question I always ask is, what was your most uh, requested commissioned character? Yeah, I, was, uh, I really don't do too many anymore because I like to be able to not have to work in the room too much. So I take, like, four of them a day, and I year by year, I always find i talked to other creators and they're like you, you're not charging enough <laughs> and uh, i noticed the one thing about kind of raising the prices a little bit is that people then i used to get weird requests like characters that i've never even heard of that i wasn't associated with someone okay. would say you know draw betty boop or something you know what i mean it was stuff like that and i guess that makes sense that that could be an offshoot of your underpricing so someone can just go rando, you know? Right. Um, so now I generally get JSA, Captain Marvel, Shazam, Superman. All right. You know, that type of thing. And I did a little smattering of each of them. I th- did a couple of JSA characters and uh, always enjoy when I don't have to look up a costume. Yes. You know? Yes, it I always helps. It. Yeah, like Dr. Fate? Yep, I got that. Green Lantern? Sure, I got that. <laughs> so, uh... What's your favorite member of the JSA to draw? I like to draw the Flash. I mean, there's something challenging about that kind of, you know, doughboy helmet. Right. Because um, it has to sit right. And, it, and you know when you're, when you're sketching it, if you don't have it tilted right, it just looks really stupid. Really? I mean, it really does. And, you know, all credit to uh, John Wesley Shipp and that version on TV because they did a good job with it. You know, that helmet does not look dumb. It fits. No, yeah. But, you know, in the comics, uh, Jay Garrick would have a slightly tilted, but it was an artistic thing because they wanted to show his face. So yeah. depending on what angle they drew it, it always seemed like it was leaning back. Right. You know, like kind of casually. Uh, it also gave him a little bit of an edge, too. Like yeah. it was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm wearing this metal Frisbee, but hey, right. it looks cool. Right. At least it's, it's yeah. somewhat if some, sideways. If someone's throwing rocks at our head, I'm covered, guys. <laughs> you know? We need better reception. I'm your guy. That's right. Well, like I was saying with like Green Lantern, you know, you have a the Golden Age Green Lantern. His vulnerable to wood yes and he has that collar that goes up which clearly you know the ring must help him see behind him you know what i mean like give him some kind of radar warning because otherwise people could just come behind him and hit him with a baseball bat right a louisville slugger right to who the ne- back of that lucha libre collar right. who needs a super villain when you can just take him you know babe ruth there's babe ruth look out he's going after green lantern <laughs> for splinters yeah it's true and lou gehrig's with him oh damn <laughs> well the second question we always ask to folks that we haven't uh, talked to on the last comic shop is I, I've, I've found that most of you are, 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 are co- were comic fans at one point. Oh, and yeah. I always ask, do you remember what the first comic book that you had, or was really the first comic you were like, yes, this was? Well, you, you, it's a difference between the first comic that I read and the first comic that I truly cared for. Okay, let's go with the cared for. The cared one. for. Well, the cared for. I discovered Marvel Comics in uh, June of 1960, or actually end of May in 1967. My brother, my mother, and I were going to my older brother's college graduation. My older brother was 16 years older. Okay. And we were getting a train to Colorado. So the train station had a comic rack. My mom gave my brother Joel and me a dollar, and a dollar bought a lot of 12-cent comics. Okay. And we immediately went to Marvel. 
because we'd watch the cartoon where yes. they had the Marvel superheroes show. So I bought stuff that wasn't on the cartoon, like Daredevil, Spider-Man. Those became favorites of mine. So you, you know? were like the, what, the Gene Colan uh, Daredevil? Daredevil, yeah. yeah. And I can tell you, Spider-Man, it was issue 50, him walking away from his costume oh. in the garbage can, which blew my mind. Like, wait, can a superhero quit? And with Daredevil, and it's still vivid in my brain, was it was like three gangster types. There two guys grabbing Daredevil by the arms, and the other gangster in the foreground pulling his mask off his head, and he's got the big, like, uh, gigantic sunglasses on under the mask. And as a kid, I was just shy of 10 years old. I remember thinking, like, wow, that's fascinating. How do the glasses work under the mask? You don't see them when the mask right. is on. It's incredible. It's uh, pulled right in. It's the magic of drawing, you know? But uh, So from those first issues, uh, do you remember the first series that you got maybe on the regular or you were like, oh, no? All of those from the minute, yeah, the yeah, minute we that, found you just, it. After you got on that train, a, you yeah, were Yeah, I was a Marvel off. maniac. And we. the funny thing is we got to Colorado and it turned out that the newsstand in Milwaukee had the previous month. So by, by the time we were in Colorado, the, the drugstore we was right by our hotel had the next issues. Nice. So we were kind of spoiled too because it was like, well, now we have to wait a whole month. <laughs> But uh, I remember all those, reading those things. My brother really gravitated toward Thor immediately. I liked them all, but I remember not liking the Fantastic Four because it seemed too scientific to me. All right. And it was an issue with the century or something like that. But again, your kid brain being what it is. I liked the Daredevil because he wasn't powered. I liked Spider-Man because he seemed normal even though he was powered. Right. You and gravitated the idea, towards the street level yeah, characters, but I also didn't, you know, like I never, I never thought like Spider Man's a quitter. That's how I first saw him. You know, he's walking away from his his job. Oh yeah, that didn't stick with me though. Spidey used to be a hothead, a quitter. I know. All that well, stuff. see, the the cool thing was, and again, for anybody nowadays, you don't get a sense of this, but they used to have put the footnotes whenever a character reappeared. Stan Lee's little yeah, note would Sam. say. You know, Electro appeared in issue 13 or whatever. Right. That gave me an incentive to then, like, try to find back issues. Right. You know, it was like, well, I need to read these other issues because this is all part of this big story. And then, of course, when you read all the Spider-Man stuff, not that I got every issue, but I got enough of them. It was like Spider-Man was always trying to quit. You know, I mean, he <laughs> goes to a psychiatrist. He definitely had kind of real world anxiety problems, which is kind of interesting. For 19, early 60s, mid 60s. It was why Marvel was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Oh, yeah. They were, they were willing to say, like, yeah, let's put some realism in this. And the problem, too, I mean, the DC comics that were, if you look at any website that would have like covers from the 1950s, like you got a whole page of covers to look at, and covers from the 1960s, they were virtually the same. Right. And you compare them to Marvel, and Marvel looked like they were coming from outer space. They were so different. Yes. Even coloring. You know, I mean, they were just different. It was clear this is not your dad's comic book. Right. You know? Well, um, I mean, at that point, DC had survived the seduction of the innocent trial, yeah. you know, everything in the 1950s. Well, and they, so were, they were willing to play it safe. They were trying they were to be the, very conservative. They were the, uh, they and, were the standard. And, and I will admit that I read Batman. Uh, my mom knew I loved the Batman TV show. But then I felt like, well, when you're a kid, you're anxious to grow up. Right. So you're anxious to also leave stuff behind. So with me, Batman TV show, when it hit 1966, I was just a, maybe a year and a half younger. But by the time I saw the Marvel stuff, it was like, well, Batman, that's for kids. <laughs> and I was, you know, really that, not that much older. 
But I did buy, I bought a lot of uh, the checkerboard, you know, DCs, uh, the Batman detective and stuff. But they never had that same impact as reading those first issues of Marvel. They were just night and day. Well, that's amazing because I know you mostly from the DC stuff and your DC work. I know that the first comic books that I really read of yours and and fell in love with was the Powers of Shazam series. Because simply put, I was a huge fan of the Adventures of Captain Marvel movie serial. Oh, yeah, that's great. VHS, and you were one of the first creators to basically. I am a take character Captain, too. <laughs> uh, to take Captain Marvel and kind of try to put some of that 1940 stuff yeah, into yeah. it, like the, basically the fact that there was like the the radio tower and and, yeah, yeah. and uh, kind of bring in Black Adam and make him more of an integral part of the whole Shazam yeah, mythos. Yeah. So how did you start working? I guess on Powers of Shazam, like how did you get well, we, involved with that project? I was working on Superman, right. And I'd done the Batman movie comic, the adaptation. Oh, he's and the, Chad's has got questions about that. Well, my my editor on that, Jonathan Peterson, had inherited Shazam to launch, and he hired Byrne. John Byrne was going to do Shazam, was going to re- reboot. And uh, unfortunately, John and DC had some kind of dispute, so John didn't do it right so my friend jonathan he says look would you consider doing it what if we did it as a standalone with the idea that you could do a series later so you could do this maybe in between while you're still working on superman or whatever and we'll do it he said i'll loan you my laser disc of the adventures of captain marvel okay you can watch the serial and we'll find a way in on it but he said we could his i think it was his idea was the idea to do it as if we were doing an adaptation of a Captain Marvel movie. Right. So it would be a complete story. And back then, DC didn't do a lot of collections. You would do a monthly comic, and it felt kind of like you'd see somebody do a original graphic novel, and I was a little jealous. You didn't have time to do it when you were working on a monthly book. Right. So this was something where we could, I could actually do something nice. I got them to agree to let me do the paint, you know, full color without... Uh, it was watercolor. Right. So every page was a full color watercolor page. It's beautiful. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. But So we, we got them to agree to this, and I started working on it actually in like 1991. Okay. And uh, I worked in between. I, I, I shifted just to writing Superman. Tom Grummet came on to Superman. Right. I was just, I was writing it, and then I was doing this as a side project. So I, a few pages here and there, and a couple of years passed. And they were still, DC was still willing to wait because I was working with DC and... and uh, so it was just one of those things where I worked at it slowly and eventually got it done. So it came out in 94 and then DC was wanting to do the a regular monthly series a year later. One was like a good entree because you're just setting up the audience for here's the new Captain Marvel. Right. He's not that different. But again, I took elements that had been plugged in years later like Black Adam. Black Adam really didn't uh, okay. get introduced until the 50s. Right. And he was only in really one story yep, before they sent them faucet. off into space. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, I was able to just put everything in its correct place yes. and, and play with a little bit of the idea of Fawcett City being kind of lo- uh, lost in time, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a, a bygone era. And then we had an explanation for it in the series as well, that the wizard had cast a spell over it yes. so that time not only went slower but it just it was a logical excuse to have something that looked distinctly different yes 
Um, and, it, and it does. I was going to say, speaking of looking distinctly different, you adapted your style a little bit for that Shazam book. Yeah. Well, what made you decide to go that route? Well, because I was different. doing it in color. I mean, when you're drawing black and white comics, you can imply where you would like some kind of lighting effect or whatever. But when you're actually working in color, you realize you have to think it through. Like, okay, there's a light source in the room. Is the light source of, of a wall sconce? Is it an overhead light? Is it coming from a lamp or from multiple sources? Okay. So you don't necessarily think of that when you're not coloring your own comic work. Oh. Um, on top of that, by doing it in watercolor, my inspiration for the look of the comic was the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Oh, very nice. And the, the funny thing about that is that the Fleischer Superman cartoons that we had available to us in like 1989 to 91 too were all old prints right that had been either on vhs or whatever but it had been like kind of in public domain really it was yes. kind of an orphaned kind of thing so the quality of them was dark in other words the color palette the film had had darkened over the years or whatever i didn't realize that was the case i always thought that was their color palette <laughs> but in 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 essence the film quality had darkened so you were getting this kind of really interesting palette where things looked more complex like it wasn't blue a sky was blue with a little bit of green in it you know yeah so i love the i love the color of it i love the palette so that was what i try to emulate and then now recently someone had done like a, a, a re uh, mastering of like the mechanical monsters yes and they basically took away the age and the yellowing of the film itself and it's kind of bright and i was like Wow, it kind of looks wrong to me. Although I understand <laughs> you could see more detail. I guess it's the same thing when they click, like in the Grand Central Station. No. Nobody knew there was this beautiful mural on the ceiling. Right. Until they started getting all the grime and cigarette smoke of, you know, right. 80 years off of it. Well, no, I, I, I agree because I had the same VHS tapes growing up right. of the Superman. And I, I it, there was a little bit of like a film noir oh, quality yeah. to it yeah, that yeah. made things were shadowed in when gray a, lot a little bit. When a lot of stuff happened at night, a lot of those stories also were took place in the, you know, city at night, like the mechanical monsters come through and they rob the bank at night or whatever. So the the actual palette was interesting in that way. Well, one other thing that I wanted to ask you before we get into Superman, because again, we want to get Superman and Batman. We've got a couple <laughs> other things for you. But my last question is really, you got a chance to do both Superman and Captain Marvel. Right. Now, I know who I prefer. Right. But who do you prefer? Or are they just this I like is apples both. and oranges? I do like them both, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I had, I think the the run on Captain Marvel is more of a favorite because I kind of did it more myself. Whereas Superman, even though I did a lot of story stuff on Superman, Superman was a group project. Right. And it's not like you could go, I wrote that. You know what I mean? It was it was more complicated to say I came up with this or I came up with that because there really there's eight other people in a room or something. Right. Which Shazam I knew was my own thing. Yeah. So and I, had, I think I'd also as a writer I felt like I was at the point where I'd matured enough and I knew kind of what I was doing by that point that I could do it myself. Sure. You know. Well, it was. Uh, I've always liked uh, Captain Marvel a little bit more just because of the child wish fulfillment. Portion. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you know what yeah. I mean? Like. Nothing's better than having being a kid and being able to yell something and then all of a sudden be the most powerful mortal right, ever right, and, right. and be able to jump off things. But Chad's got some questions. Cool. Yep. Speaking of childhood wish fulfillment. <laughs> no, uh, I was around eight or nine years old at the time of the Batman movie when that was yep. coming out. 
And honestly, that is the big thing that got me to transition from collecting baseball cards into comic books. And I know you worked on the Batman 89 uh, yep. movie adaptation. Yep. What was that like, first working on the book itself and then being part of that pop culture craziness where you guys oh, yeah. had the different ending and everything you're working with? Well, when I was doing Superman, again, I Jonathan Peterson was the editor of the Batman movie adaptation. Jonathan was also Mike Carlin's uh, assistant editor for a, a couple of years on the Superman books. So we, we were good friends. And uh, one of the things that Jonathan had edited the Superman Quest for Peace movie adaptation that Kurt Swan oh, drew. That. Yeah, it's beautiful. And John Byrne penciled the cover. I inked the cover. I mean, he did movie adaptation. He also did like oh, Alien Nation, um, which was a movie that uh, James Cameron had written and Gail Ann Hurd had, uh, had produced it or whatever. But we talked about how in this, really in the 50s and 60s, there were some really great movie adaptations. John Buscema had maybe done Spartacus and uh, one of the Hercules, uh, beautiful stuff. In the 80s, you had Al Williamson doing the Star Wars stuff for Marvel. Right, adaptations. and Howard Chaykin, you had Chaykin, well, doing the comic thing, but the, the we're thinking of more of like a complete magazine style, what Marvel was doing with those, like they did Meteor. They did a whole bunch of movie adaptations that were beautiful because they had really good production value. They were right. full color and, and, and that. So when Batman came along, Jonathan was, of course, then he's editing the movie stuff. He said, we had talked about this for years. He said, you know, we we should be the guys to bring the prestige back to the movie adaptations because what had happened in the intervening couple of years is that nobody wanted to draw them because they were not going to pay a royalty. They were, you know, like kind of, uh, who cares? They would always wind up being whoever wasn't busy would draw it. Wow, that's crazy. So I, he and I both were on that same page. It's like, we want to make this special again. And when we started hearing and seeing stuff about Batman and Nicholson's being cast and, and Keaton, and you saw like little snippets of the costume stuff as early as uh, October of 88, it was like, okay, I could see doing this. And then coincidentally, I went to a convention in the United Kingdom, uh, London, and part of DC having, they took freelancers to the set as it was being built. And I missed out on it because I wasn't there on the day before the show. Aww. So Jeanette Kahn was nice enough to allow my wife and I to go on our own. You That's know, even better. A couple days after the show. And we got to see you know, the buildings. We got to see the car. We got to see the costumes. And by that point, I was like, yeah, Jonathan, I'm in. This is going to be awesome. You know, the downside is that it was a tremendous amount of pressure work. <laughs> right, it's very high profile, but yeah. you really knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Now, well, was there secrecy around? Like, were you able to see, uh, like, the dailies, or how did you saw, end up? We saw a lot of, they, they have a set photographer just take pictures with a 35 millimeter camera. And that was a lot of it was for reference, like, to make sure you, here's what the set looked like, here's where that coffee mug was, and what have you. So, uh, we got a lot of that early on because there was a tremendous amount of pre production work done. But then once they started filming, within a month, they started throwing the script into just the rewriting stuff. Right, yeah, as, so as they do. that was when it got tricky for us because we didn't get good stills from that stuff. We would get contact sheets of one by one square inch. What used to be a color slide, they would do a black and white Xerox of it. So it was really hard to see details. So, so did you guys know about the revised ending or just decide to go with the one you Jonathan had? Kept, well, we, Denny O'Neill at a certain point said, I don't want to do any more rewrites. You guys take care of it because he didn't want to keep going playing with it. So right. Jonathan and I would go through the contact sheets, 
we'd look at revised script pages and try to figure out where these new scenes were happening. So some of it was guesswork. And when we finished, we had to finish the book by April. Like the okay. first week of April, it didn't come out until June. Right. Because there was a lead time, print time, and all that. So when we saw the movie in theaters, we hadn't seen any of the model work for like the Batwing. We knew what it looked like, but we didn't see the composite with the city above 40 feet because the movie set only goes to 40 feet. And then they did paintings, matte paintings, to make it look grand. So when we watched it, the uh, like an early preview, not a you know Hollywood preview, premiere or anything, but it was a, a screening a week before it opened. We sat next to each other, and every time we got something right, you know, we'd see something we didn't know, and we guessed right, we would high five. <laughs> um, and we got a few things wrong that they just had was edit, edited out. Like we had Alexander Knox wearing the cape; he was covering for Bruce. Right. That was edited out. There were a few things that were like changed, but but that's uh, part of the charm too of getting that uh, adaptation and being yeah. able to see that stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like an Elseworlds version of yeah. Batman '89. Yeah, just... or it's the uh, non-director's cut. That's right. <laughs> the no, artist yeah. cut. It has its own your own stamp on yeah, it. It yeah. really is. It's, yeah. it's something different than just watching the movie. But it was. Everybody thinks that that movie was a guaranteed hit, but I guarantee you, everybody at Warner Brothers was sweating bullets until it opened and opened yeah. big because they had a lot invested dropped. people went crazy for the trailer no, no but, but that still doesn't mean the movie's going to do well because it was a really crowded summer people don't remember that movie came out there was a um i believe there's a was it indiana jones three there was a james bond movie there was a star trek movie there was a whole bunch that came out boom 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 in that season i think james bond might have come out in may batman was june then you had, like I said, you had uh, James Bond, Star Trek. It was a crazy front-loaded summer. So everybody was nervous until it opened big. And then, of course, oh, we knew it would be a big hit. There you go. But it was an expensive movie for them, too. So now, I mean, when we were there, we were like, oh, my God, this is big. And you could tell it was big because we planned and worked with the uh, DC's um, circulation director to get the comic in multiple places, mainly in the movie theater. That's awesome. So it was going to be in the movie theater opening night, and Warner Brothers got cold sweats, and they said, well, we don't want it to seem like we're hawking comic books at the theater, so they wouldn't let us sell, or wouldn't let DC sell the comic until after the opening weekend in theaters. But it's still, a lot of people bought it there because comic stores weren't that well-known, and they had the little comic store locator number at the back of the of the Batman movie. So that became kind of like a... It really was like an entree to the entire comic, you know, direct Absolutely. market. It worked on me. And once everything came out and was that success, did you have like bragging rights around the office where you're like looking <laughs> at Norm Brayfogle and be like, yeah, I got the adaptation. No, no. But you know what? We got a big check. Or I got a big check because it sold really <laughs> well. So I got a, 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 a big enough check. Normally, you know, I forget what it was, but it was uh, it was enough that when I took it to the bank to deposit, they had to bring the manager out to look at it. Like, you know, I'm depositing, and I'm not like asking for cash. So not that, right away. Just put it in the bag. Exactly. That, that impressed me to a degree. Like, gee, what do I look like? I was, you know, a I'd like all of this in sacks of money with a giant green dollar sign yeah. on it. I need these in. Well, can I get these at all in Lincoln pennies? <laughs> But, but you knew it was a big deal, and, and, and it became like a big deal over that whole summer. I got, I did comic conventions with Jerry Robinson, was a guest of honor at San Diego, Chicago, Atlanta, 
um, it was it was great fun to be part of like that big popular you know whatever popular pop pop culture thing yeah yeah yes the zeitgeist for sure well we didn't even talk about death of superman but i think that might have to be for another interview some other time jerry thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us on the last comic shop and uh we hope the best for you in future thank you all right see you again and we are back and that confirms it the only batman is michael keaton Nobody else comes close. I don't care that Christopher Nolan and all that, whatever. He's no Michael Keaton. <laughs> wow. That mm. is a hot take. No, sir. it's not. No, that's a normal take. The best Batman <laughs> and the best Batmobile. Is it the best bat suit? No. Well, I mean, it wasn't the best costume either because it didn't have the bat nipples. In any case, oh. what, what we do got is uh, more interviews coming up right after these commercial breaks. So stay tuned. More Last Comic Shop. We got uh, Alex Saviak and uh, Ron Marks coming up right after these messages. I was going to recommend making a joke about going from bat nipples to milking more of these interviews. Oh. What happens when 20-something Madison is zapped into old-time radio shows? No technology. Ugh, why want to go to voicemail? No Starbucks. Don't call yourself a coffee shop if you only sell drip coffee. And no one is PC. I don't need no lip from... Were you about to say woman? Because I'm wearing a gun and I have no idea how to use it. Madison on the Air serves to highlight the way we were and the way we are today with original radio drama scripts adapted to include the modern-day Madison as she joins famous characters from radio's past, including Sergeant Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. I've never actually said that. Marshal Matt Dillon. We're not having a shootout with a 10-year-old kid. I'm too woke to be a part of this. Superman. I didn't realize how cold it would be flying like this. I have to get into the higher atmosphere. And many more. Visit us on the web at madisonontheair.com or find us pretty much any place podcasts can be found. You talk so old-timey. I have no idea what you said, but it's adorbs. Hi, this is Chad from the Last Comic Shop Podcast here with Alex Saviak. Is it Saviak? Yes. I apologize. I read your name when I was nine years old and just made it up in my head. I hear you. (laughs) And so you have been a Spider-Man artist extraordinaire in so many ways, shapes, and forms, whether it was doing where I first noticed your work on a web of Spider-Man, whether it's doing the Spider-Man comic strip in the newspapers, or whether it was even doing some of the all-ages books. And it seems like you were just all over the place with Spider-Man. The guy, whenever they needed somebody, you seemed to, to serve admirably. So... I'm curious, as a, a Spider-Man artist, who are some of your favorite Spider-Man rogues? Spider-Man rogues? Villains? Yeah. Okay, well, put it this way. Whenever I think of the uh, rogues gallery of Spider-Man, I always go back to the first, I'm going to say roughly around the first year and a half, two years, that uh, Spider-Man came to be when it seemed like Steve Ditko and Stan Lee created a new villain each and every issue, and one seemed to be more powerful or diabolical than the next. In the issue number one, of, of all issues, when you want to s- test Spider-Man's metal, as they say, you have the chameleon, who's just the guy that changes faces. But then all of a sudden, in the second issue, you got the vulture and some aliens, and then you all of a sudden you got Dr. Octopus and Sandman and uh, Dr. Doom and the Lizard and Electro and... The Enforcers and Mysterio, Craven the Hunter, the Green Goblin gets introduced. And 
it just seemed like it was nonstop. Those guys just kept coming out of the woodwork uh, from the minds of Stanley and Steve Ditko. So I'd say those guys are probably, uh, for me, the most famous. Although I, I would say currently, obviously, the obvious ones are, you know, Venom and Carnage. Right. They're relatively later additions, and very few rogues have stuck in the way that the Stan and Steve uh, characters did. Now, when I first uh, encountered your your work, one of my favorite storylines was when some of those bad guys turned good. I don't know if you remember drawing Harry Osborn as Green Goblin and the Molten Man teaming up yes. with Spider-Man. I think it was in Web of Spider-Man 47, and the only reason I remember that is because that was a... A pivotal issue for Harry Osborn turning into the Green Goblin when I think in the final panel of that story, Harry was in his, I don't know, attic or wherever, and he pulls out the mask from wherever it was that of the Goblin. Right. And now, for, I can't remember what the backstory was, why, why Harry was turning nuts and becoming the Green Goblin, but it was fun to see him back in action, you know. Uh, Andy just reminded me about Parallel Lives. What was it like working on that story that ended up being so pivotal with the whole Spider-Man-Mary Jane relationship? Well, number one for me, uh, the first appeal of that was the fact that it was going to be my first graphic novel. Okay. Um, and I really enjoyed working with Jerry Conway already on the web of Spider-Man. So to follow up and do a graphic novel with Jerry was great. And knowing that we're delving into certain origin pieces that I guess were never explained before, basically... I had no idea that Mary Jane knew that Peter was Spider-Man when she saw him crawling up the side of his house early on in the story. And she goes, oh, my goodness. But she never mentioned it until, I guess, Peter told her. But she already knew. Right. The funny part about that was, as a Spider-Man fan, you, I would go back and read the original Spider-Man run. And if you read it with that knowledge, it all tracks. Like, it seems like Mary Jane knows and she's making excuses for him. Those early issues with uh, John Romita when she's at, they're all at the coffee shop or something. Right. And, and everybody would be like, where's Peter? And she'll be like, ah, he's around somewhere. Or, oh, he's doing this and that. It all makes sense. She knew and she was just covering for him. And it, it's it's amazing how that all came together. Now, last time that I talked with you, Alex, uh, was a couple of years back at uh, New York Comic Con. And you were telling me, was it because of Parallel Lives that you ended up ultimately catching Stan Lee's eye for the, the, for the comic strip? Because I know eventually you worked with Stan Lee on the comic strip, but how did you get involved with that? Oh, well, just what it just so happened that um, my contract at Marvel was up, and I was already freelancing for Topps Comics doing the X-Files. And um, Ralph Macchio, one of the editors up there at Marvel, called me up out of the blue, I guess, and unless maybe they... Did they try other people, and they said no because they're too busy? But at any rate, <laughs> they came to me, and he said, Listen, there's this guy named Fred Keita who's an old-time artist, okay, probably even from the 40s, uh, who's been filling in on the Sundays for Stan. And Stan got him to start doing those fill-ins like a year and a half ago. And finally, Fred said, hey, Stan, you know, I, I'm trying to retire here and I'm doing you a favor, but I can't seem to retire because I keep working on this Spider-Man strip. I want to get off, finally. <laughs> and so now they were short a Spider-Man Sunday artist. And uh, Ralph called me up. If you're interested, and I said, sure, you know, I figured, well, I'm not doing any mainstream comics at the time, but I can work with Stan Lee and even keep my my name in there, even if I'm just doing the one page a week. And I put some samples together, uh, some comics that I had drawn, got a package and a cover letter, and I sent it out to, to Stan. And um, basically what happened was 
this is the day in we're talking 1997 and we did not have you know digital phones and recorders and all that stuff but we still had audio cassette tapes and so i come home from shopping one day and uh there's a message on my machine and it's stan lee and he said hey listen it doesn't pay that much but think of the glory and i said <laughs> okay well that sounds like stan all right um i said sure and actually when he said it didn't pay that much i guess he wasn't aware of what the rates were in comics anymore at that time because what the sunday page paid was what i was getting at the time that i was instilling comics you know at the marvel and even when i was doing the x-files right so um the syndicated strips were the way to yeah go. and i figured oh well what the heck you know I'm, i'm not losing any money here by doing this and uh again it keeps my hand at drawing spider-man and the whole bit and pretty much that's that's how it started my first spider-man sunday was for um i think it was somewhere in may of 1997 and i i basically got in I mean, Fred Keita didn't even wait until the end of the storyline. Uh, I got in in the middle of a... Well, king- he wanted to retire. Yeah, yeah. He said, hey, you know, I mean, I don't know how old he was at that particular <laughs> point in time, okay? But yeah, he wanted to get out, and it was in the middle of a Kingpin storyline. So I got the Xeroxes, I guess, of the prior weeks. Pretty much how I got started. So I was getting uh, script pages every two weeks. I would do two Sundays and send them in. Okay. via FedEx. Yeah, so I, was, how- uh, I was curious about how, <clears throat> how different was that from, you know, knowing that like you had a whole book to tell a story versus only a couple couple panels. Was it was it an easier gig or di- was it more challenging or was it just a different animal altogether? It was a different animal. The more challenging aspect of it was when in a comic book, if let's say f- just for a change of pace, you want to show Spider-Man climbing up a building, you go, okay, let's do a big vertical panel. Right. And we'll show him climbing up the building. There's people down in the ground in the foreground and pointing up or whatever. In a newspaper strip, you've got the same format day in and day out. And so if I want to draw him climbing up the building, I still have to do it that way in right. a rectangular panel, whatever. And as Jim Shooter once said, if you have a six panel grid, the top third of it is for captions and dialogue, which means now you have two thirds, which looks like a widescreen frame, which almost rivals what you see on let's say, in a movie theater. Right. And that's the way he wanted artists to approach it. Hey, don't worry about a six-panel grid. You are doing something in this particular screen format because you got to leave room for the copy. Right. And so um, that's kind of how I approached it. It wasn't cinematic in a sense, but the story flowed. And again, up to me to make sure that things flowed from panel to panel. And uh, the only drawback, I think, was that in just drawing the Sundays... There was always a blurb at the in panel six that would say, uh, let's say you had Spider-Man facing a, an antagonist in the, at the end panel. And it says, next week, the aftermath. And you're going, okay, the aftermath. So then I read what's going on during the week. And in that whole week of six dailies, Spider-Man fights the bad guy. And then my first panel for the following Sunday is the cops taking the bad guy away. So I'm going, wow, I missed the whole fight. <laughs> no, that and Larry got to draw all this fun stuff, and I didn't get involved on the fun stuff then until 2003, when they had asked me to fill in on a week of dailies to do inks, uh, because John Tartaglione, the uh, current inker uh, that had been doing it for quite a while, was already, I guess, in his 80s, but he had to go into the hospital for what they called a procedure, and that was in February okay. of 03, and so when he passed. They just called me up and said, hey, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, of course. 
that being said, now I got to, if not pencil the dailies, which I didn't do, but at least when I was inking them, I got to see what was going on between Sunday to Sunday. So I felt like I was still part of it. Right. And then, oh, I guess towards the end in the 20, 2018, the year that Stan did pass, Larry finally decided to retire from penciling the dailies at 87 in, I guess, May or June of that year. And so they said, well, would you want to pencil them too? I said, yeah. So all of a sudden I thought I had this dream gig of penciling and inking the dailies, penciling the Sundays, and Stan was going to live to be 100. But it never happened. He just, unfortunately, I think one of the main reasons that he lost so much of himself is that he was married for 70 years to the same person. And his wife passed away the year before. And Stan was never the same. He was, I call, I always tell people, he, he became half Stan after that. Oh. You know, as skinny and as frail as he looked, he always seemed to be so jovial and full of life and energy. And um, he lost all that once Joni passed away, unfortunately. And people were concerned, his, his friends, his colleagues, people he worked with, they were all concerned about him and tried to keep him busy and keep him upbeat. But you know... After a full day's work, even if you're at it for 12 hours, when you come home to that empty house, it's an empty house. And, um, you know, like I said, eventually he got sick. He got pneumonia. I think he got out of the hospital way too soon. And um, I kind of just, I guess it all just kind of came to a head and did him in. Very sad story on that. To lift things up a little bit, you have worked with some of the greatest in comic books. You are a great uh, creator, collaborator in your own right. But who are, who are some of the, your favorite people to work with? Who do you think you gel with the most? My favorite anchor in comics uh, was Frank Giacoya. Okay. And uh, so we worked on some covers together and stuff, and I really enjoyed working with him. Uh, I thought the stuff looked great. And I guess when you're working with one of your idols, that's a lot of fun. I did work four covers with John Romita Sr., and that would have been a dream a dream job to have him ink a complete story of mine, but that never came about. But again, two great heroes. Working with Joe Sinnott for 22 years on the strip was phenomenal. I've worked with Tom Palmer, uh, Keith Williams. Uh, there have been a number of really, really good people that somehow, their names escape me at the moment. But Sounds like a murderer's row. But you know what? They know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for your time and all your insights. Okay. Uh, thanks for stopping by the last comic shop. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Chad from the Last Comic Shop Podcast here at Baltimore Comic-Con with Ron Mars. Uh, thanks for joining me, Ron. Um, and so I know you primarily from uh, your 90s Silver Surfer work, your 90s into uh, the 2000s Green Lantern work. And I know you've done some things with CrossGen. I'm just hoping to talk to you a little bit about today about some of that stuff. Sure. Let's start with the Silver Surfer. What was your experience like following up Jim Starlin? You know, what made you want to go with the Heralds of Galactus and dive into that? Well, Jim is the one who taught me how to do this, right? And Jim obviously was the one on Surfer before me and talked Marvel into turning the book over to me when he left to do Infinity Gauntlet, which seemed to work out pretty well for him. Yeah. Um, so it was really, it was my on-the-job training. I was kind of learning how to write comics while I was writing comics, and the, my first gigs were Silver Surfer. And uh, your collaborator on that, which you recently teamed up with, was uh, Ron Lim, who, for my money, still draws one of the best Silver Surfers in the business. What was it like working with him? Um, Ron was great. I mean, if, thankfully, he was a consummate professional, um, and I learned a lot about storytelling and how to do this job from working with him. Like, he would take my scripts and 
turn them into, you know, turn them into pages. Um, and that learning process of seeing what I wrote and seeing what it turned into, you know, was invaluable to get better at this. Couldn't have had a better creative partner on the book. And then they teamed us up again uh, earlier this year for, for another surfer story. There you go. What was that like? Was it uh, like falling back into the same routines or? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, writing the first, the first issue, the first half dozen pages or so. I haven't stretched these muscles in a long time. This is kind of <laughs> weird. But very shortly, it was just like old times. And then especially when Ron's pages started coming in. And I was like, oh, I remember exactly what this is like. <laughs> now, do you work full script or do you go Marvel Method or somewhere in between? Or what's your process? Uh, generally full script. But the, the full script is loose enough that you know I want the artist to fully creatively involved in in the process. And if that means they, you know, they revise some stuff or add a panel, take away a panel, um, that's to me part of the process and that's all, that's all good. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll write a full script and the dialogue will be sort of placeholder dialogue. Right. And then when the art comes in, I go back in and completely rewrite the dialogue to fit what's on the page. That sounds great. The best way for creative people to be creative is to let them create. So, yeah, well, that's, I mean, ultimately that's, that's what the job is. It's just making up stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So let's transition a little bit into Green Lantern. Now you came on to Green Lantern at a very tumultuous time. You had the parallax storyline, the leading to Kyle. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? What was it like being thrust into one of those higher profile gigs? Well, it you know, DC came to me and said, "Do you want to take over Green Lantern?" And I said, "Oh, sure, that'd be cool." How's you know, how's basically like Chuck Yeager with a power ring? And right. I love that Gil Kane costume that he's in. And they're like, "Oh yeah, well, we got something else in mind." Oh no. Uh, so they gave me their page and a half outline of what Emerald Twilight was supposed to be. Uh, the odds and ends of what story was, you know, broad strokes. Um, and then they kind of left it in my lap to, to flesh it out and then to create a new green lantern. And we, we really didn't get any direction on what the new green lantern was supposed to be like or who it was supposed to be. So Daryl Banks and I just kind of made up, uh, Kyle from scratch and, you know, really kind of patterned him after the everyman sort of character that you would get from Spider-Man. Absolutely. And he served that role uh, not only throughout your book, but in the Justice League and all those different incarnations. And Yeah, it was, a, you know, it was a time at DC where the legacy characters like Kyle and like Wally West had sort of taken over the books. Uh, yeah, I, that's one of the differences between, between Marvel and DC, at least in that era, was that the, you know, the, the Marvel characters were pretty much what they were. DC characters had gone through a number of different iterations um, from the Golden Age into the into the current age, and uh, Kyle was kind of the next one in line. Now, I do have to ask, just because I have you here, you were partially responsible for like a word, a term, the refrigeratoring, yeah, uh, which I, came uh, up in uh, She-Hulk recently. Not, not even partially responsible, I think completely responsible, <laughs> except for, you know, Gail Simone is actually the one that coined the term. Right. Um, and obviously, I'm friends with Gail, so there's no there's no bad blood or anything there. But yeah, it was, you know, it completely valid criticism. It's funny at the time I was not thinking of what everybody else compares it to is is the death of Gwen Stacy right. in Spider-Man. I wasn't thinking of Gwen Stacy at all and I'm not even sure that I had read that that issue of Spider-Man by the time I was uh, writing Green Lantern. Oh, wow. uh, I was totally thinking of uh, Uncle Ben. I mean, there to me go. it was it was meant to be much more of an Uncle Ben moment than a Gwen Stacy moment, but obviously the parallels are completely valid. No, absolutely. And it's it's tough because on one one hand, it is a tool in the writer's toolbox. 
to take a character off the table like that. Well, but, and I mean, sometimes it gets misconstrued. Or, yeah, you know. certainly in certainly in superhero comics and superhero comics that are you know have a legacy to them, um, like Marvel and DC books. To a great extent, the heroes don't change. Heroes, it's the illusion. It's the illusion of change, and if you want something permanent or something tragic something's going to happen to one of the supporting characters because, you know, your your main character doesn't end up dead. Um, right. So it's sort of part and parcel of, of serialized fiction that the main characters, the featured characters, just just keep recurring. They just keep coming back. If you're going to take somebody off the table, it's got to be a supporting character. Right. But, hey, being known, uh, even if it's an infamy sometimes, is, uh, it's, it's good to be known. I, I guess, yeah, I guess better infamous than ignored. <laughs> Now, speaking of things that were infamous, you were part of the Grand uh, CrossGen experiment. Oh, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, what that was like? <laughs> um, you know, in the long run, it was like every other comic. Uh, you know, we were making comics. Right. Uh, we just happened to work in the same office. So it was it was sort of the, you know, the myth of the Marvel bullpen brought to life. Right. Because um, we, you know, most everybody that worked for the company lived in Tampa, Florida. Most everybody worked in the office. We had... It was like having a nine to five job, but your nine to five was happening to be making comics, and so in in that respect, it was you know it was great. We were staff employees. We got sick time and vacation time and four hundred one k and health benefits and all that stuff. So like we a had real job. We had yeah, we had we we had a grown up job, but we were making comics. Um, <laughs> was it fun? Was it? What was um, yeah, I mean it was it was generally fun. Creatively, it was pretty great, at least for me and a number of the people I was working with. We enjoyed the collaborative nature of being in the same place. We right. could sit down and kick ideas around and go out to lunch and uh, plot where the series were headed. You know, it was it was creatively fulfilling. I think probably more so for some people than others. Um, I think some people you know don't function well in a group setting like that. Sometimes, um, yeah, with creative people, they just yeah, want to be left yeah, alone. Yeah, they want to be left alone. So, uh, so there, there were both ends of that spectrum. But, but I think overall we had a we had a good time. I think overall, pretty proud of the comics that came out of there. Obviously, business wise, it turned out to be uh, not a lasting kind of thing. Um, we spent too much money and didn't bring enough money in. Right. Um, it's but, a shame, though. I felt like if given more time, you guys could have. Really yeah. Well, I, we certainly we we expanded too much. It was too much too soon. And, uh, you know, the initial thought for the place was that if we didn't make Dime One, the company could uh, fund itself for five years. That was the, that was the promise that we were, we were all given when we, when we took the job. But unfortunately, a lot of the boss's wealth was tied up in the dot-com boom. So when that crashed, half of his money went away overnight. Yikes. Um, so suddenly that five-year window was not was not a real thing anymore. Um, oh, and by that point, we had expanded too much and hired on too many people, had too much overhead to really be able to recover. Well, let's get back into uh, current day stuff. Now, we already talked about Silver Surfer Rebirth, where you reteamed with Ron Lim. I noticed you've got a Kickstarter going with uh, Daryl Banks. Do you want to talk about that at all? Um, the Kickstarter is actually uh, the, a guy named uh, Michael Katz, who's a lawyer and comic fan and writer created this uh, concept called Riot Earp, which is kind of outer space cops, basically. Okay. Um, and a mutual friend put uh, put me in touch with, with Mike, because Mike was looking for somebody to, to be his editor on this series. And so I took on the gig of editing uh, his series for him. And then uh, and then he said, hey, can you, would you be willing to write like a special for this with my characters? And I said, I said, sure. And we talked about artists, and he's like, do you think Daryl Banks would actually draw this? And I'm like, well, probably, you know. And, then, and obviously, 
the the biggest part of the the allure there is you know Daryl and I getting to work together again. Um, uh, cool. Just just the same as with Ron Lim, when you work with somebody uh, that long over that period of time, you get real comfortable. It's like uh, you know, it's like being an old married couple. There you uh, go. So anytime we can get go back to that, and I can work with those guys, um, it's just just a delight. All right, and one last thing, I'll get you out of here on this one. I notice you're teaching classes. I'm an educator myself, only I deal with eighth graders. But you're teaching how to write comics. Yeah, I I, uh, I teach a. Uh, how to write comics course for a place called the Jacob Kruger Studio in Manhattan. The courses are online, uh, and so it's basically a like four week boot camp that teaches you how to write comics. Any By the free end of advice for our listeners. Uh, well, the the thing that opens the session is that comics are frozen moments in time, and they are, I think, the hardest kind of writing you can do. It's harder than screenplays. It's harder than prose. It's harder than nonfiction. Um, because you have to bring so many different skill sets to it, you have to you have to understand how the page works, understand how the visuals work, and be able to communicate that to your artist. And then, uh, on top of that, obviously you have just the the drama stuff of being able to tell a story. So it's not the easiest thing to to learn. But you know, I I teach this course a few times a year, and uh, you know, I've had a number of people that have come through the course and then gone on to like make their own comics, and that's. That's hugely satisfying that you can, you know, you can help somebody get to that next point in the de- their development. Yeah, so bring it full circle like Jim Starlin did for you back in the day. Uh, the frozen moment in timeline is one I stole from Jim Starlin. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This, these frozen moments in time, I appreciate it. Our last comic shop uh, listeners appreciate it. And we hope you have a great show and uh, best, best wishes for future success. Thanks, Chad. My pleasure. And we are back. Yes, Ron Mars. I am jealous. So glad to see him link up again with Ron Lim and put out, for me, classic Silver Surfer in Silver Surfer Rebirth. Wait, wait. Ron Lim, like, is it reprinting old stuff or is it new stuff? New stuff. I mean, it's it's a bit of a retread because you get Jack of Hearts, you get Legacy, you get all, you get Thanos, you get all the old characters coming back. But it is new storylines, new art, new Silver Surfer they kind of just ignored the whole Silver Surfer Black thing. They definitely ignored the Dan Slot Mike Allred Silver Surfer completely. Thank God. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, people didn't like that. That was uh, that the from no, where people loved it. Like they it. loved it if they weren't Silver Surfer fans. Those oh, people are just JA. It was that JA. That's his shirt. I didn't like this run. Everybody else. Anyways. Long story short, we got one more interview from Baltimore Comic Con. It's right after these commercial breaks. It was with Greg LaRoque, who did one of the best flash runs ever. Being a PI, you learn fast what seems like a normal case never is. You never realize how much you're going to need your friends. You can never guess how near your enemies are. And you never know who to trust. Now I'm chasing down an ancient artifact. The only thing that can stop this newly unearthed terror. It sounds crazy, but I'm not thinking how nuts it all is. All I can think about is the only man who's ever managed to grab my heart is right at the heart of this mystery. And why? Every time my heart gets involved in anything, there's always a monster waiting in the shadows to break it. Ripped from the pages of the self-titled comic book comes Dash, a new queer supernatural noir podcast. 
Follow us on Twitter at Podcast Dash, on Instagram at Dash.Noir, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're here at Baltimore Comic Con, and we're talking with Greg LaRoque, and uh, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day, sir. Hi, everybody. And uh, yeah, the one question that I always start off with, I'm sure that you were a comic book fan growing up a little bit. I mean, that's probably why you- I was a comic book fan growing up. So my main question is, and it's the first softball of the day, Uh do you remember the first comic book that you got? Or the one that you like, maybe not the first one you got, but like this was the one that like- most memorable from my childhood that like kind of like yes i had read comic books okay right the ones that i liked were basically like used books because i wasn't even have access to like new comic book stores okay back in the day there wasn't comic book stores so the 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 books that i was reading was uh, that i liked i remember was superboy and legion of superheroes okay right so that was all the auto bender bender stuff or uh kurt swan okay that would be early 60s but what changed me and then got me to be the comic book fanatic was Fantastic Four number one. All right. Just like everybody else, I read that book and it changed my life. Okay. Uh, it was so different. The stuff I had been reading before, you know, the final panel when the torch flies off and it's just like such a dramatic thing. It was like, wow, what is this? You know, they don't do this kind of stuff in comic books. These are the good guys. Yeah. So uh, right after that, I just, uh, like I said, I became a fanatic, started collecting, had pretty much everything Marvel put out over the next dozen years. Wow. Yeah, I was a Marvel maniac. I used to save my lunch money, collected, you know, the the, uh, Coke bottles that you used to... Uh, trade in for like two cents. So you're a, you're a member of the Mary Marvel Marching Mary Society. Mary Marvel Marching Society. Yes. <laughs> is that march like, along, march along. So is that is that ultimately why you wanted to work for Marvel? Like, I, I mean, how, I guess that's my next question is like, so now you are a comic book fan. Yeah. How did you translate that into being, you know, doing that for a career? I guess. Well, I, I was always interested in art before comic books. Okay. Uh, I was a guy in school that got all the art projects. Before I got into comic books, I used to take like the Sunday paper. They had like a TV guide. I forget what it was called. TV something or another. Right. Uh, Parade magazine. And yeah. they would have a cover of a celebrity or sports figure. So every Sunday I would take the, you know, those pictures out of the magazine um, and just trace them or try to draw them. Yes. You know, it, I think I was doing that before I could walk. Okay. It, so it, I, I was born with a pencil in my hand. Oh, yeah. And that's it's, it's amazing because like we've been doing this for a little while. And it seems like all the really great artists at some point got started by doing tracing. I, I was reading a really great book about even in the 1920s, 30s, uh-huh. like people like Will Eisner or, or folks like that, they would get like uh, butcher paper uh-huh. that they would, you know, pack meat in and they would put it down over the Sunday funnies and they would just trace it. And I used so- to do it with uh, wax paper. Ah, you see, there wax you go. It's transparent. You, it, it doesn't look like anything, but you're getting a little bit of education where things go. And, you know. So who was one of your favorite persons to sketch or, or, or trace, or did you just trace anything you could get your hands any, on? Any, anything and anybody. Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you like Jack Kirby? Did you like Steve Ditko's more art, or you or were back in the day? Did you? Uh, I was a big Marvel guy. I loved the Fantastic Four, but for me, the Kirby work that I just loved was the Thor work. Okay. Yeah, Vince Coletta. For me, I think was the best anchor over Kirby. Most people are going to say Senate, right? But I go with Coletta. I love Thor, and I was really ecstatic when uh, my very first work for DC, as as far as superhero goes, was Omag, and Vince Coletta was my anchor. Oh, yeah. When wow. I came over to Marvel, he inked my graphic novel, The Aladdin Effect, right? And uh, a couple Spider-Man issues. You know, so yeah, it was really cool to grow, you know, grow up admiring these guys and loving their work, and then wow, 
start working for Marvel and boom. Well, right one of the questions. One of the questions. I just read the Aladdin effect just recently. Just like I just re revisited it, and I was curious about that book. Uh, it was written by uh, Jim Shooter. Yeah. And uh, was that because it's really about like four super super heroines at the time? Uh -huh. Was there a, a potential pitch for like a series that would continue using those characters for a while? No, or? I don't think it was. No, I think it, was it was just like, like a standalone type of he thing. He was just just wanted to include four of them. And what was the story behind that particular? Um, I was. Doing month-to-month -month stuff for uh, Marvel, doing films, basically. I might have started Paramount and Iron Fist, I'm not sure. Okay. But here's the story on that graphic novel. I was in the office. I think I was sitting next with uh, Danny Finger off doing something. So I was probably doing Spider-Man at the time. Vince Coletta, again, pops his head in. Okay. All right, he says, Jim Shooter wants to meet with you, right? He's going to offer you either a miniseries or a graphic novel. Okay. He says, pick the graphic novel because I'm going to work with you. I'm going to ink you one. Wow. Okay. So fine. I go into the office later on. I meet with Jim Shooter. He says, I got two projects for you. You want to do a miniseries? You want to do a graphic novel? So I already talked to Vince. I said, well, I'll take the graphic novel. Okay. Graphic novel. It was an early you know, stages of graphic novels. So it was kind of like a prestige thing. It's not another comic book. Right. No problem. So I took the graphic novel. I was happy to do that. But it turned out that the miniseries that he offered me was Secret Wars. No. So I turned down Secret Wars. Wow. Well, you gave Mike Zek some work, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say, and you've had your opportunities with plenty of work that's still well-loved and well-renowned. Yes. Now, I, two things stand out for me from your, your library of work you've done. It's your Spider-Man work, whether it was on Marvel Team-Up or Web of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be involved with the, the black costume era? And, like, you have some of those great early pre-Venom symbiote stories. Yeah, sure. It, it was great. I mean, it was such a strange time that you know they were even thinking of changing spider-man you know right. of course it was all fake out but uh yeah i mean drawing spider-man uh was a big opportunity for me i was very happy to do the book prefer the black or the red costume whenever you had your opportunity the, the red the, the classic yeah um actually the black costume i guess zek was the one who designed it okay but my very first attempt at drawing that they had me redraw it oh because i put in too much uh, definition they wanted to look black 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 but just to give you an idea how i wanted to draw the book but you see there's a lot more definition. muscle showing a lot more yeah. definition Lots kind of, of like the old black boat you know oh, yeah. and it was like they they mixed that to that that's not the costume so very cool but in your spider-man run you're also known for uh assistant editors month can you talk a little bit about uh, golden oldie i'm going to tell you the absolute highlight of my career okay you know forget the books I've worked on, the money I've made, the praise I get at the convention, stuff like this. The absolute highlight of my career was when I did uh, Marvel Team Up. That would have been issue 139. Okay. Because this is two months later. But after I did that, Golden Oldie, which was the assistant editor's month. Which explain for up, the audience, what happened? Who is Golden Oldie? Golden Oldie is Aunt May. <laughs> it was assistant editor's month where uh, the entire lineup of Marvel books that month was turned over to the assistant editor to do whatever they wanted to do. Mike Carlin came up with the story of what if Aunt May became the Herald of Galactus. <laughs> he gave her powers and she was then Golden Odie. So I drew her up and had her looking sexy, you know. Sexy Aunt May. Some fan had got such a tickle out of it that they wrote in a fan letter. Okay. Right? And it's in this Marvel number 141. So this book right here, if you could hold this, it's my absolute favorite book ever. It's the highlight of my career. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to ask you guys to read it. Okay. All celebrity voices are poorly impersonated. Hey, Bob, Aunt May vs. Galactus was a doozy. 
golden oldie knocked me out. If her figure is really all that sexy, look out, Red Sonia. No wonder Doc Ock once dated her. Toss a couple of no prizes at Michael and Greg. Loved it. Your boy Stan. Nothing like getting a fan letter from Stanley. Official no prize, yes, in print. So <laughs> this is the highlight of my career. That's Jeez. wonderful. That is wonderful. It is. It's great. Yeah. Did you? I mean, how many times have you written a fan letter? Right. Oh, no. Did you get to meet Stan at all? I you? met Stan uh, one time. We were in Chicago uh, at a convention. He was floating around in the room. I was with my buddy Scott Lovedell. We saw the crowd partying, and of course his head is like you know a head above everybody else as he's coming. And he and Scott are very good buddies, and I had not met him at all. So, you know, hitting the sky, hooked up for a little bit, started talking. I was just, like, hanging on the side. And all of a sudden, Stan looks at me and says, who are you? <laughs> I said, well, I'm Greg. I'm a friend of Scott's. He says, okay, I won't hold that against you. <laughs> pretty much that was my conversa entire conversation with him. I didn't even introduce myself as an artist or anything. Oh, wow. But uh, it, was, it was nice. We hung out for a little bit, had a nice little conversation. That's awesome. While we have you, I want to shift to DC and just your work on The Flash with yes. Mark Wade. Okay. The story where uh, Barry Allen comes back. Yes. And it's, you know, spoiler alert, it's a faint. But man, did that story <laughs> cement Wally West and his legacy. Can you talk about that? What that meant to you? What it was like to work on that? Yeah. Uh, no pun intended, but I had a long run on The Flash. Started with Bill Loeb's. Loved working with Bill. And uh, I can remember meeting with Bill, and one of the first things I asked him is really, what, how much of an asshole do you think Wally really is? Because <laughs> they wrote him as just like this terrible person right. early on. And he says, well, I'm going to make him pretty bad, because what we're going to do is we're going to build him up. We're going to make him a man. So I, I guess my run was four or five years on that book. Yeah, I did a lot a of... really lengthy run. Yeah. I think it's one of the times where comic books got it right, and uh, it was all about the character, the guy... And the fans got to know Wally, and to see him actually go from being that starstruck, kind of like a rock star superhero, to grow, to see the, learn a little more responsibility, treat women better, and become a man. So then when Mark took over, it was like, now's the time to really take, he's, he's ready to do it. Okay. So the, it, that was the one, Return of Barry Allen, where he, he basically earned his flash. If you remember, uh, in, the, in the story, oh, it yeah. was Jay Garrett. He stopped calling him Junior and started calling him Flash. So yeah. like that was the moment where he stepped into manhood. Yeah, he finally became his own his own man. That yeah. was that was the story. It was my first Flash story that I read back as a kid. And uh -huh. boy, it set me as a Flash fan for life. That was just so great. I'm still rooting for Wally yeah. this day. And of course, we all know that Wally West is the true Flash. Oh, yeah. All the others are posers. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it's true. I mean, the fact that they brought uh, Barry Allen back recently, it's so sad because like that just overshadowed all of that great character development that you got from Wally West. Yeah. I mean, you're right. They did the comic book character right. They, mm -hmm. they took their time with him. They made him grow and earn his stripes the right way. And so... Yeah, you're not going to get any arguments from either yeah. Chad or I that, like, I Wally West... I when fans come up and they talk to me about the books and the characters, like, they really know them. I feel like I've done my job right, and we've done our job, you know, correctly, when they can really connect. Absolutely. And, and, you know... That's what great stories do. You're a great storyteller. Fantastic. And when it comes to... One last question I have, All and right. it's always uh, another uh, slowball question, but... Uh, it's in regards to your, your your work as a storyteller, and you're yes. working with different writers yes. and things like that. What what kind of method do you like as as an art? Do you like full scripts? Do you like just outlines? Do you like to add a little bit more of your color I, to it? I hate full scripts. Okay. 
Yeah, it's much better to work with a synopsis, a plot synopsis. When I worked with Bill, Bill Lubes on Flash, uh, his sometimes his script was maybe a page long. Okay. You know, just basically tell me what happens in the story. I'll, I'll pick out locations, I'll expand what I want to expand, decrease what I want to expand, and just, you know, he left it up to me to understand what he wanted to tell and allow me to illustrate it. Mark, on the other hand, he just, you know, five panels. Uh, this is what I want in each panel. It's, it's fine working that way. He had a very distinct look or, uh, you know, vision of what he wanted, so I was happy to, you know, just give him what he wanted. But I really prefer, you know, having the ability to, you know, spread my wings and flex my muscles and just, you know, get in there and contribute a little bit more. Right, yeah. yeah I think it makes the work so much better. It does. It makes it more of a collaboration. I mean, again, both sides are very, very important, but, like, yeah. you get to, again, spread your wings as a storyteller. Yes. Like, you get to... But I'm the guy who starts with a blank page. You know, I have a script, which is typewritten stuff, but I have a blank page, and I have to make, you know, like you say, it's storytelling. You have to make what he has in words work in pictures. And oftentimes they, you know, will ask you to do things and maybe there's a step there's missing or maybe there's a two or three steps you need to combine. Denny O'Neill taught me everything I need to know about comic books. Not everything I need to know, but maybe the most important thing. And he said to look at the story and think of it as a joke. Because at the end of the story, at the end of the page, you have a punchline, you have a payoff. So make sure you're setting, what you're doing is setting up that payoff the punchline in the end. Oh, very good. That's what good storytelling's about. Words from Denny O'Neill, the late great the man. Denny O'Neill. Yeah. Uh, the last question, and I promise this is the last <laughs> one. You talked about Vince Coletta, yeah. uh, has, how, how you liked him. Is there any other inkers that you really enjoyed working with over the years? Uh, I, I enjoyed working with all my inkers. I mean, some have been you know better than others. I'm not going to say who's better, who's not. Uh, there was a bunch of guys I haven't been able to work with. Um, one of the guys who's here today, Mike Grell. Uh, whenever they would ask, you know, who do I want to ink me? Grell would be on the list. Bob McLeod would be on the list. Ruben Seam would be on the list. Cal Sanson, all these top guys. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, they didn't. Uh, they didn't send them my direction. <laughs> That's okay. There's still time. You know so what? I, I'm glad that you came our direction. Thank you so much, Greg, for taking some time to talk to the Last Comic Shop fans mm -hmm. and. Uh, We'll see you in the funny pages. Thank you, guys. All right, that was our great interview with Greg LaRoque, and I hope that you liked the uh, poor impersonation of Stan Lee that Mikey Wood interjected when we were talking about the letter uh, that Greg was very proud of. I hope you all enjoyed that. By the way, where is Mikey? Like, we haven't seen him since the opening segment. Uh, we lost him behind a big stack of uh, hard corpse number one. <laughs> One of those, quite possibly, a gold cover. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. You could I think he was ironing. Whole... I think he's ironing back there somewhere. <laughs> you could get a whole nickel for that issue. <laughs> One thing that you can get absolutely free is more episodes of The Last Comic Shop, and you do that by going out to www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. It's a terrific website where you can get all of our episodes, including all of these past episodes for, from Baltimore Comic-Con. We finally wrapped up all of those interviews, but we've got at least four more shows, plus shows with interviews from Three Rivers Con, plus an, a, a show with an interview by... Uh, folks like Ben Morse and uh, Kaylin Smith and Kelly Thompson and Meredith uh, McLaren, all these great comic book talents dropping by the shop to give you awesome comic book stories. So yeah, continue to listen to our show. And if you love some of these comic books that these all these comic book creators are putting out and you need places to put them, 
like bags and boards and boxes, make sure that you're going out to bcwsupplies.com today and using promo code LCSPOD. It will save you 10% off your order, which you can then use to buy more comics, which you then can buy more bags for, which you can then buy more boxes for, which you can then use the promo code again to get 10% off your order. That promo code LCSPOD, a part of every single sale, goes to the last comic shop to support our mission to bring comic books to you that's right the more you buy the more you save somehow <laughs> and the more we get a piece of which really once you've got your books and they're bagged and they're boarded and they're protected and all that you might actually want to talk about them so check us out on the socials we are available all across the board at last comic shop and if you need to find us you can always go back to the home base which is our website www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com where people can find all sorts of fun things like what, J.A.? Well, we've got a link to our merch store, so if you've got all your bags and your boards and you need something to carry them in, get a tote bag. Buy yourself a t-shirt. You need a coffee mug? We've got that, too. We've got it all covered over at the Last Comic Shop merch store. Yeah. All your luggage for your next Comic-Con uh, trip. <laughs> That's how J.A. is going to get back for the next Comic-Con. He's going to ship himself in a steamer trunk. He's going to put some like UPS stamps on it and poke a couple air holes. Make sure you do it this time, because the last time... It well, last time good. I forgot the air holes, and it got a little <laughs> dicey there towards the end. <laughs> and you smelled. Oh, oh, yes. Well, no, I didn't smell. Everyone else could smell me. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that doesn't smell is our our show we hope it doesn't stink and we hope that you come back next week until then i'm the host with the most andy larson i was joined by my regular co-host jay scott and chad smith as well as mikey wood he's somewhere taking out the trash so it doesn't smell in this place i guess until next week stay safe stay clean and remember that talking to folks is always a good way to use your voice it's better than yelling it's better than crying definitely better than laughing at because a lot of people they'll just punch you for that what are you talking about who's been punching you (laughs) point to the doll (laughs) the last comic shop was a 2023 black anders production